All right, observation and history is what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about the value of both of these disciplines of science. Now, I don't know if this is, uh, if it's proper to consider history a science. I didn't really uh, research and say, yes, it's a type of science or no, it isn't. I don't know what, what it's typically categorized as. But I believe these two walk hand in hand because a lot of what we understand about what we observe today can be interpreted by what we know of history, and we'll talk a little bit more about how we can know those things. But before we get into that, I had three questions <clears throat> that I've been asking the last couple of nights, and I, I had some, uh, I've had some interesting responses uh, during the sessions and after the sessions on these questions, and so we'll just go ahead and get them, out, get, get, get them out of the way here this evening and talk about them. And so I want your response. You've been thinking about these questions for a couple of days now. I want your response. I've been proposing that faith is dangerous and that it's detrimental, uh, potentially, to humans. And I want your feedback on that. I want your feedback on that. Is faith a dangerous thing? Okay, so without faith, it is impossible to please him. Because... Okay, so faith in God is the very foundation upon which our which our lives as Christians are built. Okay. Any other feedback on that? Trust is one of the main factors in all government and commerce and business and the whole enterprise built on trust. Okay. So the entire enterprise, even for unbelievers, is built on trust. And I believe you're making trust and faith synonymous. Yep. Okay. Any other feedback on that? Is... Okay, without faith, go ahead. Without faith, there's no hope, and without hope, you're lost. So is, go ahead. Okay. Okay, so the question is, is there faith in every religion or even in the belief in evolution itself? Okay. <clears throat> All right, somebody else is going to say something back there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. So we have faith in a lot of what we do in everyday life. Now, uh, let me ask this question. Is it dangerous, and, I, and you touched on this a little bit, is it dangerous to have faith in evolution? Or is it detrimental? Or faith in Allah? Is that dangerous? Okay, but you, but you have faith in your atheism. You have faith. What are we getting at? What's, what's the bottom of the issue? Yeah, what are you placing your faith on? Okay, anything that replaces God in his word is dangerous. One of the things I think we're going to bump into is this question of faith. 
Because as we look around us, as we look at history, we see many times in history where people placed faith in religion or in a god or in some person, and that was very dangerous to them. That brought about their demise, or like Hitler, or that, or that caused them to, to harm other people, harm themselves, or that caused them to mislead thousands of people in some cases. So the key is not necessarily faith, but what your faith is in. And I, I like that uh, Hebrews came up, and I wanted to talk about that <clears throat> just a bit uh, here in a minute. The definition of faith that I found in the dictionary is complete trust or confidence in someone or something. The second definition is a strong belief in God or in the doctrines of religion based on spiritual understanding rather than proof. And I thought, I'm not convinced that that's a great definition of faith. Because is our faith only a spiritual thing that's not based on proof? Is that really what our faith is? Is our faith not at all based on proof? We talked about faith in an airplane or faith in driving a car. When we, when we get into an airplane, we have faith because United Airlines or Southwest or whoever has proven hundreds and thousands of times that they can do this safely. And so we walk on there in complete trust, or at least most of us do, I would, I would guess. Maybe there's a few that you know, are a little shaky about it. But we walk on there in complete trust because we've witnessed them do this correctly now, now they, maybe they failed once or twice in hundreds and thousands of times. And so we have faith in that. We have something to back up our faith. It's not a blind faith. So that second definition where it says a strong belief in God or in the doctrines of religion based on spiritual understanding rather than proof, I don't like that. I like rather the definition in Hebrews 11 verse 1 uh, where it says, Now faith is the substance or the essence or the foundation or the confidence of things hoped for, and that is things that we have a reasonable expectation of, things that we trust in. Hope is not necessarily blind either, okay? We've witnessed what God has done in the past, and therefore we believe in what he's going to do in the future. It's not blind. We don't come to believe in God and just, just throw everything up and it's completely blind. No, we have a whole history, thousands of years where we can see what God has done and how he's been faithful. And so we have a whole history to trust in and to believe in. So faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence or the proof or conviction of things not seen. That is faith. Faith is not blind apprehend or blind, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A, a blind uh, feeling or an understanding that we get blindly with no proof. That's, that's, not what, that's not what we do as believers, I don't think. I think we have, we have uh, viable proof in God and who he is. Mm-hmm. That's a very human reasoning. I think what we're doing here is basing our faith on a revelation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Without that revelation, we could not have known. Right. So our faith is based on the revelation, not on understanding revelation the revelation of who God is. From, that revelation is always from the greater to the lesser. Mm-hmm. Yep, the revelation is from the greater Right. Yep. Yep. That's good. So we have the basic proof that God is and that He rewards them that diligently seek Him. So 
uh, farther down there in Hebrews chapter 11 where it says, without faith it is impossible to please God. One of you quoted that. I believe it was, yeah, I think you quoted that. Um, But he that cometh to God must believe two things. That he is, which we've been talking about this whole week, and that he rewards those that diligently seek him. Now, how do we know that he's going to reward those that diligently seek him? We have to believe that. He that comes to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those that diligently seek him. How, how, how do we know that? Through history. Through what he's done. We see what God has done. And in that, in that same passage, it mentions that uh, through faith we understand that the worlds are framed by the word of God so that things which are made so the things which are are not made of things which do appear, something along that line. So we can, we can understand that the worlds were framed. We, we have that same faith in creation. We see that, we have that faith. We see what God has done. We have that faith that God created. And therefore, we can also have that faith that God is going to continue to do what he says. We have seen God keep his word, and so therefore we can trust what he says in the future. So I would like to c- conclude on that by saying that I don't disagree with the atheist by saying, when they say that faith is a dangerous thing. Because I believe that their faith is dangerous and will lead them to the wrong, the, the, wrong, the wrong end. It will not lead them to where they want to go. Rather, the key is, what is your faith in? What are you believing in? The next question that I ask is, why would an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good God allow suffering? And this is a difficult one because this one not only has a logical or a reasonable or, or, you know, something that we can kind of think through, but it has a very strong intangible or emotional aspect to it as well. Someone that, someone like myself that hasn't experienced a lot of, you know, deep suffering, I might come out of, you know, answering this question one way versus somebody else who's experienced a lot of deep suffering might have a completely different answer just because of what they've experienced. So the answer to this question, I believe, is not only something that we think up here, but it's something that, that we can gain through experience. For example, you know, I might, I might uh, answer that question by saying, well, we shouldn't ask, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? We should ask, why do good things happen to bad people? Because we're, in a sense, we're all bad people, right? Why, do, why does God shower good things upon us? I might say that we're asking the wrong question. Or I might say that, that in order to have free will, God needs to allow suffering. And suffering is the price that we, pray, that we pay for free will. And, and those things, I believe, are true. I think those things are very, very valid reasons. Uh, I could also say that, you know, suffering builds positive character in people. And we even have the example of Jesus. Uh, in Hebrews 2, chapter 10, it says, For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons into glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect, through sufferings. That's Jesus that it's talking about. Uh, in Hebrews 5.8, it says, Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And so I could say, well, suffering, suffering builds in us character, and it does. And I, I could even go on to say, well, you know, you know, if you witness people that have experienced a lot of pleasure, which is kind of what we're experiencing in our, in our greater culture today, all the pleasures that we experience, they don't necessarily bring about what we expect, the happiness or the joy that we want. And so suffering really ultimately can bring more joy than pleasure itself. Unlimited pleasures is ultimately not good for people. And so I could answer it 
in those ways. And I think that those are all valid and reasonable and good answers. But what about when you're in the midst of suffering? How do those answers strike you? Probably kind of cold, kind of standoffish, kind of like, I don't understand what you're going through, but here's a logical answer. And again, I'm saying I think these answers are good. At the end of the day, I don't know, you know, if I was one of Job's friends and I would have given him those answers, I'm not sure what, they, what that would have done for him in the state that he was in, in his time of deep suffering. But what's remarkable to me is that Jesus, on the cross, experienced suffering like probably, well, like none of us will ever experience. And what that tells me is that God is not cold or distant in the face of suffering. In other words, God doesn't just come down and solve the problem of suffering and just make it better and just take care of it. He might sometimes, but he doesn't always. Not nearly always. And there's, there's many examples that, that we could look at of people that have suffered immensely. We're like, why? What was, what was the point of that? We don't understand. It doesn't make sense. But what I see when I look at God is that he's not just cold or distant, uninvolved or disinterested. Even when he appears to be silent, he was there. He took part in suffering just like we have. Or maybe even in a, in a, in a more, dip, more challenging way than what we have. And so I think the answer to suffering might lie in some of those answers I gave initially, but I believe probably the greatest answer that we can give is the answer of Jesus Christ. Because he understands. He's experienced that. He understands what that suffering is like. And there's also compensation for Christians who suffer. In Romans 8.18, it says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and reckon their means to take count of or to conclude. I conclude or I'm counting. You know, when I, when I compare, when I put them on a scales and I compare the suffering of today and the glory that's going to be revealed, the glory that's going to be revealed weighs more. I'm, I'm counting that. The third question that we ask is, why would an all-knowing, all-powerful God kill himself for the atonement, for the sin of the people that he created and that he knew when he knew they would commit those sins? And again, I'm not asking these questions out of doubt. I'm asking these questions to challenge us to think because I think they're questions that we're going to bump into more and more in our culture. The interesting thing about this is that God's mercy cannot act apart from God's justice. God cannot separate, somehow separate his mercy and his justice. They always act together. And we see that as a, at the cross. The penalty of sin needed to be paid for God's justice to be, sa- to be satisfied. Now that's, that's, again, like we talked about last night, that's, that's foreign to people that, to, to the world. That's foolishness to them. The Bible says that the cross is foolishness to them that don't believe. It's, it's absurd. It's ridiculous. And it, it is kind of to our natural mind to think that God would really allow himself to suffer like that. That's, that's just unbelievable for us. That's just not how God should be. That's not what God should do. Now, on the other hand, as people, we can be thankful that God doesn't just randomly pardon sin because that would, that would be really challenging uh, for us in the idea of justice. God holds justice as high as he does mercy. Now, these questions build on each other. We have faith in God because of what he has done in the past, what we have witnessed, 
And there's an opportunity for our faith to be strengthened through suffering. Because Jesus has suffered for us and has experienced suffering like we have. I, I'm just curious if anyone has a, an, any, any thoughts on that before we, we wrap up that and move into our subject, a little bit more uh, detail on our subject this evening. Mm-hmm. And then would it enter in for our lives too, without knowing why necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's the will of God. There's also the part that Jesus relieved suffering for the people, but did not for himself. Mm-hmm. And it's because of the will of God for his particular situation. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I believe that's right. And the will of the Father will sometimes take us down a way that probably our flesh does not want to go. Yep, so we have the example of Job. A lot of good examples. Um, but again, I, I want us to be aware of these questions. I don't want us to be blindsided by these things. These are foundational questions and maybe something that we don't bump into a lot. So observation in history. Tonight we're going to be talking about the value of both disciplines of science. Um, Now the idea of science um, is the systematic enterprise that builds and organizes knowledge in the form of testable explanations and predictions about the universe. So something that we can test, something that that we can do over and over again. We can do these experiments over and over again and come to conclusions. We typically think of this in the lab with a test tube, um, but there's a second discipline that I believe is just as important, that's the discipline of history. Now, this is where it gets complicated because we can't witness history. We can't observe it. We can't test it. We can't go back to creation and see what happened. We can't make creation happen again so we can observe it and test it and do experiments on it. We can't redo the flood and see what happened and why it happened and how it happened and how it works scientifically, and yet history is very important. Uh, and tomorrow night we're going to dig more into the historical evidence for Christ, particularly the resurrection. I, I believe that that is the central, one of the central things of our faith is the historical evidence for Christ. That was critical for the early church and, and that spread to us today. So we'll start out with the idea of observation. And I'm going to call this uh, observational science versus historical science. Uh, Ken Ham, I believe, is the one that coined these these two phrases. I don't think there's any specific uh, words that, you know, or phrases. This is just something that, that he coined to deal with the difference between what we can observe versus what we can't observe, which is, which is in history. What is observational science? The way I would define that is drawing conclusions from repeatable experiments conducted in the present. Observations can be gleaned from these experiments to formulate theories and laws. So, uh, you know, like the, the law of gravity. You know, we can... We witness that every time we jump off of something. Every time we drop something, we witness the law of gravity. It does the same thing every time. You know, it'd be crazy if we drop something and it would go up. But no, we know it's going to go down because there's a law there. There's a law in place. Um, That is what observational science is. Out of observational science then comes technology, medicine, things like that, because we know that when we put these two things together, they act that way, and therefore we can make something out of it, and it'll do the same thing every time. Now, this is what I find interesting. Top scientists through the centuries have agreed on observational science. 
Why have they agreed on it? Because you can observe it. They can all see the same thing, and they can all observe the same thing. But they've disagreed greatly on historical science, which includes where we've come from. And that takes us to only one conclusion, and that is that scientists cannot be trusted with historical science. They cannot be trusted with what's happened in the past. Because you might have two scientists that have the same level of knowledge of how they, of how they view present things, and yet they disagree on what's, what, what has happened in the past. So we cannot trust scientists to tell us what's happened in the past. It's crazy. It's absurd to think that from our observations in the present, we can deduce what has happened in the past. So what is historical science? Viewing observations and experiments in the present and calculating what happened in the past based on what has happened in the present. So that's what scientists try to do. So we're going to look at what happens in the present, we're going to look at how things happen, and we're going to multiply that back as many years as we need to go to get to what we believe was at the beginning. So we know where we're at today, and we think we know what hap- where we were at the very beginning, and so we're just going to multiply it out. Take as many years as we need and keep going back until we get to where we think we began. Now that's, that's a little bit crazy, in my opinion, uh, a little bit crazy of a way to, to try to figure out what, what has happened in the past. The first problem with that is we cannot observe what has happened in the past. Like I mentioned before, we only have speculation or circumstantial evidence of past events from what we see in the present. So we see fossils, for example. We know that there was something catastrophic that happened at some time. There, there was either something catastrophic or there was millions of years. Um, and, and it depends what lenses you're looking through, what your worldview is, uh, with what you're going to believe about that. The second problem is we can't directly test our conclusions. We can come to conclusions, but we can't test them. So we can't all agree on them if we can't test them. If we, can't, if we don't all have the same foundation, uh, it's going to be hard to agree. Now, history is important, but historical science cannot be trusted because that's taking the science of today and trying to figure out what, what has happened based on what is happening today. I want to note something. This doesn't mean that we can't make intelligent guesses about the past. Okay? We, can, we can do that from what we see in the present. Now, is history unimportant? How do, we, how, how do we test what has happened in the past? What do we do with things that are outside of the realm of observation? I mean, we talked about faith. Obviously, we can't see everything. And when you get into an airplane, you don't walk around it and check it. Um, you, don't, you don't check the, the pilot to make sure he's properly licensed or, you know, you don't, you, don't, um, you, know, you don't check around to make sure that he's never had any accidents before or anything like that. You just, you just walk in. How do we, what do we do with things that are outside of the realm of observation? If we did not live in the past, how do we know anything at all about history if we weren't there? Does anyone recognize these images? Anyone know, know what they represent or what they are? Civil War? Okay, and what battle specifically? <coughs> Say it again? Gettysburg, Gettysburg. yep. The, the image on the left there is an image uh, of, the, of how they lined up at the Battle of Gettysburg. Now I want to think about this, this battle a bit. What do we know about the Battle of Gettysburg? Turning point of the war? Turning point of the war, okay. Lots of casualties, yep. Okay, the south came from the north, the north came from the south. 
We know that it was fought on July 1 through 3, 1863, or at least that's what Wikipedia says. So I guess that's true. We know it was fought in, in and around the town of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. We know it was by Union and Confederate forces during the American Civil War. We know the battle is often described as the war's turning point, like, like was mentioned. Uh, we know that Union Major General George Meade's Army of the Potomac defeated attacks by Confederate General Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia, ending Lee's attempt to invade the North. We know that Lee led his army in a torturous retreat back to Virginia. And we know that between 46,000 and 51,000 soldiers from both armies were casualties in the three-day battle. Can you imagine? 46,000 to 51,000 soldiers from both armies were casualties. The battle was the most costly in U.S. history. Now, how do we know these things are true? Do any of you question these, these things, these items? Anybody question it? How do we know that they're true? You weren't there. You don't know anyone that was there. How do you know that it's true? Isn't that crazy that we would, that we would, I could just put something up here from a couple hundred years ago and we'd all just agree that it, that's the way it was? Come on. Okay, it's recorded by historians. But how do we know we can believe them? Okay, a lot of people don't. All right. <laughs> they were credible witnesses. And if we don't believe them, you know, we're, we're kind of out of luck with that. What do we rely on as proof for historical events? There's two things, historical documents and eyewitness accounts. There's two things that we rely on for historical accounts. That, that's what historians look for, historical documents and eyewitness accounts. Now, we don't know any eyewitness accounts from that war. So that's, that's out of the picture, right? But we have what they wrote down. We have documents of what they wrote down, the people that, that witnessed the war. Okay. All right. So if it wouldn't have been true, the people of that day would have done something about it. All right. We're running out of time. Regardless of what proof we have that something happened in the past, we must accept it by faith. If you weren't there, if you didn't witness it, you are, we are accepting it by faith. Faith is a requirement to believe anything that happened in the past. You could even argue that faith is a requirement to believe anything that happened yesterday. Because how do you know it wasn't just a figment of your imagination? How do you even know you're alive? How do you know that's not just imagination? You could take this back pretty far. And, and there's some people that do. We, it's humorous to us, and, and, that's, and that's fine. But there's some people that, that, take it, that take it that way. Regardless of what proof we have that something happened in the past, we must accept it by faith. And again, without faith, it is impossible to please him. He that comes, comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So how do we apply observational historical science to discover how the world was created? I'm going to run through this uh, fairly quickly to talk about how we can know how the world was created by these two items. The universe is logical and orderly. So this only makes sense of a creator that was logical and orderly. This doesn't make sense if the, if the world was formed out of an explosion or a big bang. Our minds are able to comprehend many things about the universe. This makes sense if the creator of the mind gave us that ability 
and that desire. This does not make sense. Our brains are byproducts of mindless processes since we couldn't trust our own conclusions to be accurate. <clears throat> if we can observe and repeat an experiment or observational science over and over, then the universe must consistently obey those same laws over and over like we talked about. This only makes sense if the lawgiver created it that way and continually preserves it. And Colossians 1.17, I'll read 1.16 and 17. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. This is talking about Jesus. And he is before, him, before all things, and by him all things consist. And that word consist means hold together. By Jesus Christ, all things consist or hold together. I, I believe that means literal. I believe that means physical. I don't think that's just spiritual. I believe that literally by him, by his word, all things hold together. Science in itself, observational historical, is only possible because God exists and the Bible is true. Do we have historical science to prove one way or another, another about creation? Do we have do we have what we talked about, eyewitness accounts or historical documents about creation? Yes. What's an example? Genesis 1.1. Are there any other documents, historical documents that talk about creation? Okay. Everything's the same as it was. Okay, most religions point back to creation. Now, we can, can we trust those sources? Are those sources trustworthy? <clears throat> You're shaking your head no. What I, what, the point I want to make here <clears throat> is that even secular scientists understand and believe that the Bible correctly talks about past history. There's not very many disputes about Jesus. And there's even a lot of secular uh, historians that believe that Jesus resurrected or that something unusual happened there. And we'll talk about, we'll get into more detail with that tomorrow. And that's a fascinating, a fascinating study. So we have, we have an eyewitness who was there at creation. That's God. And we have a historical document, which is the Bible. Yep, Christ and the Holy Spirit were also there and also witnessed it. The Bible is trustworthy and even secular scholars will admit that it accurately records historical events. That's important. Now, I don't want to go too far on that because it doesn't mean that if no historians believe the Bible that it would not be true. But that really, that's a strength, I believe. Historians know that the Bible accurately, uh, accurately records historical events. I'm just going to touch on this briefly. Um, and this, this is an example of where the idea of Something that we can observe versus something that, that we cannot observe. Something that evolutionists claim happened historically. And that's microevolution versus macroevolution. Microevolution is like, you know, a bunch of different types of dogs coming from one dog. So that's small evolution happening over time. That actually did happen, by the way. We, we can observe that in the present. But what we've never observed is a dog becoming a monkey. Or a dog becoming a human or anything like that crossing at the species level. So we can see microevolution, but we've never witnessed macroevolution. That's just an example of the difference between what we can observe versus what has happened in history. So we really have two options here. We can try to observe what we see in the present and figure out what happened in the past based on what we see in the present. 
Or we can do like we do for everything else in history, and that is depend on eyewitnesses and historical accounts. And we'll pick up with that idea tomorrow evening. We'll talk about why God and specifically why Christianity. We'll talk about some of those historical events tomorrow evening.